What the Actual Fork podcast is co-hosted by two intuitive eating registered dietitians, yours truly, Sammy Previtt, owner of Fine Food Freedom, and Jenna Warner, owner of Happy Strong Healthy. We can't stand diet culture bullshit and love keeping it real. Our mission is for all humans to believe that they are made for so much more than chasing a smaller body. We are also here to share with you that food can be fun and pleasurable again. Although we are medical professionals, we are human too. We are not afraid to share our deepest, darkest secrets and how years of our lives were taken by diet culture. We started this podcast so no human has to feel alone in their journey towards food freedom. So get comfy and join us for a casual convo where you can expect to laugh, cry, learn, and grow. Well, welcome back to another episode of What the Actual Fork Podcast. This is Jenna Solo today, so you're not going to hear Sammy and I talking over each other. I'm going to spare you that today. And I have the absolute honor and privilege of interviewing Megan McNamee, who is better known as Feeding Littles on Instagram or half of Feeding Littles on Instagram. I'm so excited. I was just telling her how my almost eight month old, how difficult I have found it to feed him and how her page has become my Bible. Um, a little bit about Megan. Megan is a registered dietitian nutritionist specializing in maternal child nutrition and eating disorder prevention out of Scottsdale, Arizona. She and her business partner, Judy Delaware, an occupational therapist, co-own Feeding Littles, which helps parents worldwide bring back joy and confidence to the dinner table. It is so amazing to have you here, Megan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I feel like your stresses and many people's stresses about, you know, how their kids eat is well, that's why I have a job, right? <laughs> so it's very, very normal. So I think one of the biggest things that I would love to start with is what we were just talking about before we hit record is you're a dietitian. I'm a dietitian. You specialize in something I have no idea about. So how did you get to where you are today? And on top of that, you know, you have combined feeding babies and eating disorder prevention, which is so incredible. It's so specialized. How did you do it? If you want to take 30 seconds, 30 minutes, tell sure. us your story of how you got to where you are today. Thank you. Um, it's actually kind of a special story. So, you know, when there's there are things that align in a way that you couldn't understand as you go through them, but then they make sense as they've, they reveal themselves. That's exactly what this project is. Um, I'd always worked in the maternal child space and in um, clinical trials. And I worked at WIC. I worked in a lot, a lot of different capacities and I did... Um, private practice. And I was laid off from my job at a startup, let's see, three weeks before my due date of my first baby. And at the time, it's, it felt really scary. And, you know, why is this happening to me? But I wasn't happy. And I, on my actual due date, um, I got in a car accident. And I had to go to the hospital. And it was this big, scary thing. Turns out every, everyone was fine. Baby was fine. She actually stayed in for another week which was lovely. Like, mom, I'm not ready. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, I, you know, if you wanted to come out on, on time, that probably would have been okay. Um, but no, it was, it was just a scary time. And it, I just shared that part about the car accident because, you know, they, they give you, if you get injured they, they, and you're pregnant, the insurance company just gave us this big check and I was like, please don't sue us. And it allowed me to stay home for a little bit and try to figure out, well, what in the world am I going to do? Cause I don't have a job to go back to. And I didn't have enough of a built up private practice to do that fully. 
And um, I started working um, at a birth center locally. I just gone there for lactation services. And they said, you know, will you teach a, will you do a prenatal nutrition class? So I started doing that. And then they said, can you teach this infant feeding class? Um, we would love you to teach it about baby led weaning. And I was like, I, that sounds great, but I have no idea what that is. And this was over eight years ago. Um, and I started doing some research onto it. I read multiple books. I did literature reviews. I ended up kind of being one of the only, the first people in the U.S. to really be talking about baby led weaning and just teaching it locally. And when I started a Facebook group and when um, we had clients whose babies turned one, one and a half, they started saying, okay, well, it's time for you to do a class, another class, let's do a toddler class, but we don't live in Arizona anymore. Can you, can you do something online? And I thought, well, I could do something online. I know how to put together things like that. I just don't know how to get toddlers to eat. Like, I don't know anything about that. We didn't learn that in school. We learned about what to put on the plate. We didn't learn about how to encourage actual eating of the food and why they're not eating. And um, around that same time, a friend of mine introduced me to Judy. And I live in Arizona and Judy lives in Colorado. And the reason she knew her was because when her son was alive, she lived in Colorado temporarily. And Judy was her feeding therapist and occupational therapist. Her son had a terminal condition. Um, at the time, it was considered terminal because there was no, there was no medication for it called um, spinal muscular atrophy. So he was just given, you know, a few months to live and he died at six months of age. And Judy was this special bright light for their family. Um, she was this person that came in and unlike everyone else, didn't treat him like he was on hospice, treated him like he was this very alive baby who still could play and still could have tastes of things and still could um, do baby things, even as his muscles slowly degenerated. And that was such a special relationship. And so she ended up having another baby and our babies were born almost the exact same day. So it was kind of a line experiment for this, you know, goosebumps. And I just remember one day she'd come back from Colorado and she's like, you need to meet Judy. You need to be, you guys are doing the same thing with it, you know, from different specialties. Um, and we got together and we each had our own private practices kind of consulting things going on. And we decided to create feeding littles as our own entity together. So that's, really where it started from. And, you know, a lot of people don't know that story about Jack, but I share it because um, there's been so much advancement in SMA. Now there are multiple therapeutics for it that are just completely groundbreaking and amazing. And we do uh, support um, the Gwendolyn Strong Foundation. It's actually a very important um, charity for us because that's who supported Jack's family when he was, when he was alive. So, uh, you know, we donate to them every year as a portion of our course proceeds. And it's just something that we want people to know about because, um, he was really special and he never got to even eat. And now he's helping, you know, millions of babies and families have more joyous mealtimes. And that to me is just so profound in so many ways. This is such a meant to be story. And thank you so much for sharing all of that. I mean, I'm speechless. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. It's incredible. And I, I don't know. I really don't know what to say. So thank you for sharing that. Thank it you. is incredible how your story started before you even knew how to feed babies. And right. you're now helping literally millions of people do the same with this experience. And so, you know, one of the first questions that I would love to ask you is why an occupational therapist and an RD as a team? I don't think people really understand I myself as a first time mom and dietitian did not understand the mechanics of right. teaching 
teaching a baby how to eat. Um, I still don't. <laughs> so mm-hmm. why is that relationship so important? And I really want to harp on this because I don't know all of the feeding accounts out there, but you are the only one that I know of that has this unique partnership. And you mentioned the way you described Judy as a bright light. I mean, if anybody has ever watched any of her reels, I mean, you can just tell the energy that she brings to this side of the business, which is incredible. I think the one I saw yesterday was her like throwing plates on the ground because the color was wrong. Um, The plate that she wanted. Very, very creative. So why is this relationship and partnership so important? Um, that's such a great question. It's something that I didn't even really understand until I think a few years into our relationship together, because I didn't really even know what a feeding therapist was. I never heard about it when I was in school. I'm sure you didn't either. I'm sure if I had specialized only in peds clinical, clinically, I would have maybe come across a feeding therapist in the hospital, but feeding therapists help with the mechanics of eating, including like oral motor, sensory and behavior, behavior issues that might affect feeding either caused by medical or developmental issues or um, perhaps by trauma or the environment, kind of a host of different things. So oftentimes a child doesn't eat for more reasons than, oh, I just don't like how it tastes. They might have, they might not feel the food appropriately in their mouth or their hands. I might feel, well, Judy will say um, sometimes a kid with sensory issues will, it's almost like chewing glass. That's how it feels to them. Mm. It feels so wrong in their mouth. And, um, or maybe something feels scary to, to swallow because their body is not necessarily working as we expect. And there are lots of therapeutic techniques that help kids overcome these challenges. And Judy is such a, um, a visionary in her field in so many ways. She's so experienced as an OT, but also as an OT that does feeding therapy, there's a lot more speech pathologists that do feeding therapy than OTs to my knowledge as of now. Um, but OTs are really unique because they divine, they, they approach feeding really from like a total developmental perspective. So she'll work with her clients on not just the meal time. They'll actually be on the floor doing tummy time. They'll be transitioning to crawling and sitting and all these different things because everything works together. Mm-hmm. And it's such a unique way to approach this challenge of feeding and we just never learned any of it (laughs) at all. Like not at all. So there's so many things, you know, people will say, well, I saw a dietitian for my picky eater and she just told me a few things and it's not really working. And I say, well, you know, if you came to me, I have a limit as to what I can help you with. Hmm. There are some things that obviously we both teach together, but if it's something mechanically going on or, you know, with a sensory problem with your child, that's something you have to get further evaluation and help for. And that's why you would go to an OT or a speech pathologist. Scope of practice is so important. And I feel like the world that we live in today, nobody understands that. And so to hear you really define that boundary is so important. And the fact that you have that counterpart with you is just why you guys are such a powerhouse. (laughs) Thank you. It's really frustrating for us because, you know, a lot of accounts online will talk about feeding, excuse me, or um, really deep into feeding that have no background whatsoever in feeding. And it's, challenging because there's there's just a lot of nuance and stuff you wouldn't know unless you have training in this area so we just really challenge you know our audience and your audience to make sure you understand where you're getting your information from and trust you know trust your source mom to mom sharing is great i think it's or i should say parent to parent parent to parent sharing is so helpful and that's how we learn and that's how we i think 
are, you know, biologically designed to learn from other parents. Um, but if you feel like you're really struggling with something that you need professional help with, like that's this time to seek professional help. So important. Thank you for clarifying that. And I think your expertise that I want to make sure that we unlock today <laughs> is that combination of this feeding little little people plus the eating disorder prevention side of it. And so we have spoken with a few other, I would say, people who work with children and in eating disorder prevention. And some of the topics that we really have not unlocked too much yet is the importance of verbiage around keeping food neutral at this right. young age. So we're talking like toddlers even I'm sure babies like I'm talking to my baby he's not going to remember this right now but you know no, it's important what, yeah. right like how and how would you describe the importance of the verbiage that's used around food to keep it neutral but educational for kids starting at this young age and why sure well you know Mealtime is such a great opportunity for kids to practice language skills. So Judy always talks about that. It's, it's wonderful to kids to, for kids to start learning descriptors for adjectives about food. Um, also because it will help them understand what their likes and dislikes are and how to kind of understand how food feels in their body a little bit. So, you know, some kids really can't handle spicy food. <laughs> they don't like it. It doesn't feel good. But spicy is a different flavor than sour. Mm. And it's a different flavor than bitter. And as we start, as even with really little kids, as they start to have reactions to things as they eat, you know, they have big facial expressions. They don't really, they don't tone anything down, right? It's, it's complete honesty on their face when they try something new. It's great for us to validate what that flavor is for them. Ooh, that's bitter. That's salty. Ooh, that's sour, you know, so that they're, they're kind of understanding what they're experiencing. Um, and that's kind of the first step, like descriptors. Oh, this is a red apple. This is a green apple. Um, because that's really how they start to develop more and more language. It's a great kind of opportunity if you don't really know what to talk to your kid about when they don't talk back. <laughs> it's just to start describing things around you. And, and it gives you kind of something to talk about at the dinner table. But, you know, let's, you know, let's, which shape on your, what's shape on your, what food on your tape, your plate has a circle shape or which is a square shape, you know, as they get a little bit older and they start identifying shapes. Um, but then I think a lot of people really start to worry that their kids aren't going to understand quote healthy eating. If you don't start teaching them, this is healthy, this is not. And that's actually not what the literature says. If we start to divide foods into healthy versus unhealthy categories, which if you step back a bit, it's healthy. The term healthy is so relative. I actually don't like it at all because, you know, what's healthy for one is really not healthy for another in so many different ways. But say you're, you know, using very standard understandings of healthy versus unhealthy, quote unquote, you know, you put the vegetables in one category and you put the processed foods, quote unquote, in another category that doesn't actually help kids eat more vegetables. It just demonizes processed foods, makes mm -hmm. them feel bad for eating processed foods. And we've actually seen in the literature that drives them to eat processed foods. And again, I'm not an anti-processed food person by any means. I actually think they can be quite healthy and so many of our foods are processed and, and <laughs> everything is processed guys. But um, I, I, I think we, we worry so much that we're not teaching our kids, not doing right by our kids by not labeling foods. When in fact, when we label them, we drive them to eat one side or the other. 
Um, and we don't teach them that all foods can fit and that all foods can be part of our, our diet. And some foods do certain things for us and some do others. And so as my kids have gotten older, what we talk about is function and how they make mm. us feel. So it's, you know, and it's not something that I like, I'm like, okay, today we're going to have a protein lesson. It's more like I've let it kind of naturally casually come into the conversation. So if they only eat dry cereal for breakfast, we'll talk about, you know, I think you're going to be hungry before your snack or lunchtime at school. If we have something with a little bit of protein, it's going to help us stay fuller longer. We're not going to, we're going to have more energy, longer amount of time, you know, kind of very, very basic nutrition without saying, well, you're just eating carbs and carbs are this, you know, that kind of thing. Like all foods can be beneficial to us, even if it's just for calories, but it's great for kids to understand how foods make their body feel. And that's what we want to keep them connected to. We want to keep them knowing what hunger and fullness feel like, knowing how foods feel on their body, which foods feel good, which feels don't foods don't feel good. And they really start to understand that more and more as they get older. Um, another way to kind of help teach kids how to eat is, Serve the foods that you hope they'll, they'll love to eat eventually. I know it sounds obvious, but people think that they have to talk, but let's model what we want our kids to eat. So if you want your kids to like a variety of foods, it's super important to offer them a variety of foods and eat with them and show them that you're enjoying them too. Um, cooking is also important, you know, bring them into the kitchen when you can so they can touch it and experience it. I know that's sometimes overwhelming in like a no way for a lot of people, but it doesn't have to be like chef school at your house every day. It can be, you know, once a month, just, Hey, do you want to come in and um, put the carrots in the bowl? I cut them up. Can you please transfer them to the bowl for me? Those are great ways that are tangible that can get kids in the kitchen and kind of have them interact with food. Um, But kind of back to your, your question about language, how we talk about it is really key. It really is. And we can drive kids toward kind of this complicated relationship with food that many of us grew up with, or we can keep it more neutral and have them explore how foods feel to them and what, how foods function in their bodies. The irony of all of this is that this is how we should still be teaching adults, right? Like keeping it so simple, like your example about cereal and maybe having eggs on the side or whatever the case may be, right? Like that simple explanation is all we need to understand, you know, what the food is doing for our bodies. Instead, we have diet culture, like screaming down everywhere. (laughs) Right. And like cookie rules that are all different in every other direction. It's so confusing. Exactly. And just making it so frustrating that it takes away that something as simple as what you just said, people don't believe because that sounds too real. Does that make sense? (laughs) Well, (laughs) and that's what I think a lot of people are drawn to our philosophies for, um, because I think if we make people, I think if we make nutrition too complicated, it's way too unattainable. A, Mm -hmm. but also to me, it starts to feel very diety and rules based. And I get a little wigged out by that as somebody who obviously works with, you know, disordered eating clients, or I did for many years, and then also had disordered eating myself. And so I, I immediately bristle, like when it's like, okay, we're getting way too in the weeds here. If it's not necessary for like a medical condition, um, I think people need it simple. They need to see like, these are, these are ways that we can boil it down to make it doable for our family. Um, and, you know, we like nutrition, we like food and talking about this, but it's not a priority for everyone. 
So true. Mm-hmm. I have to remind myself of that. It's not everyone's jam. Like those of you listening to this right now, you probably are into it because you're listening to this podcast, but um, a lot of people don't care. And I know people think they should, but they have other stuff going on in their life and food's never really been a priority for them. They just, they just eat enough to keep going and it's just not something they worry about. So that's what I have to kind of remember. There's such a wide spectrum of people when it comes to talking about a population of people feeding their kids. So we have to, we have to be able to reach a lot of people and, and not make it too complicated. Are you guys on TikTok? Oh, no, <laughs> we're not. We need to be. But the reason I feel like, like I, I get overwhelmed thinking about food sometimes is because that's all like when I open up my for you page, like it's all about opinions on food and it feels so much like this is what everybody's thinking about, but you're so right. You bring up such a good point that that's a very small piece of the world, even though it feels overwhelmingly huge. (laughs) It does. And I, I will say that I, I am a voyeur of TikTok. Um, It makes me super nervous. The comment sections make me really like uncomfortable because I feel like it's so brutal. So we just make TikTok-like videos and post them. It's it's safer and smarter. One of the things that I wrote down while you were talking before, um, because I think it's from what I've read, for um, clarity, my baby's eight months old. He's my first or almost eight months old. Um, And right now he'll try anything. And what you were saying about the facial expressions about like, ooh, like this is new or this is sour or sweet or whatever the case is but he has no likes or dislikes at this moment. Like he'll throw things on the ground. He's learned how to feed the dog, which is hilarious. Mm -hmm. But I've heard that babies will eat anything like a stick of broccoli, like anything at all, but toddlers hate everything heavy Mm -hmm. air quotes or like act like they do. Is that pretty much like growth wise, pretty normal for the, the growth timeline for babies? into toddlerhood as far as likes and dislikes, or is there something from your expert standpoint that, you know, can be done to help help yes. that process? Both. Both are true. <laughs> um, the reason, I think it helps people understanding why it happens and that it's normal, but we also can feed into it with how we respond. So I'll tell you, and, 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 that, and I say that with no judgment. I'm saying, you know, I understand that people want their kids to eat, need their kids to eat, get worried about how how much their kids are eating because they're worried about their growth and safety. So sometimes we cater to those preferences and only give them the foods that we think they'll eat. And that's how we kind of more narrow their palate. If you think about it, the more variety your kid sees, the more variety they learn to expect. And the more they're willing to try different things because they're always getting different things. Now I'm not saying you have to have a whole grocery store of, you know, variety, but if you serve the exact same breakfast every single day, your child will begin to only expect that breakfast. And so when you mix it up, it's very jarring for them because they don't see any you know, variation in that. It makes sense. Um, so going to the, the question regarding, is this normal? Yes, it's normal. It's theorized to be because um, developmentally when toddlers are able to have more independence and wander off, if they came across a poisonous plant or berry if they didn't have this like innate biological protective mechanism, making them wary of new foods, they would be more likely to try the poisonous berry. Mm. And you're also dealing with that butting heads directly with their need for control and autonomy in their little world. There's really very little that they can control. I mean, and if you think about it, our toddlers freak out about so much, but if you put yourself in their shoes, it makes sense. Like 
they were having a great time in the park. Everything was fun. This was wonderful. They had all these big plans about, you know, the sand and the slide and the trucks. And we come around and we go, Hey, guess what? We got to go home and go to take a nap. That's not at all what they want to do. That was not in their plan. (laughs) Of course, they're going to get frustrated and freak out, you know? Um, And so one thing they can't control is what goes in their mouth and what they eat. And kids learn really quickly that how we respond is how they can kind of maneuver through the situation. And they don't want to even say manipulate because they're not purposely manipulating us. They're learning from our responses and they respond accordingly. So for example, your kid doesn't eat dinner. You have at least, you know, one or two preferred foods at dinner, something that they could fill up on and they choose not to eat it. They ask for a snack 10 minutes later and you're like, sure, pick a snack. You could have, you know, one of their preferred favorite snacks. What is your child learning? I don't need to eat dinner. I don't need to attempt to try new foods. I will always get a snack afterwards if I, if I ask for it. Now, obviously there's some flexibility with this. Like there's just some hard days and you're like, eat the snack and go to bed, whatever. But consistently, if we keep doing that, our kids kind of learn, okay, well, I don't need to eat. I don't, why eat dinner? I'll just wait for the snack. Hello. They're smart creatures. That's what we've taught them. So, um, that's kind of what we teach is are the kind of things that nobody tells you about feeding kids <laughs> Yes, <laughs> me, because it's, totally. yes, yes, it's not. I mean, when I met Judy, I remember she said, everyone just asked me all the time, why does nobody tell you this? And can you figure out how to tell people this? Because it's really counterintuitive based on even how we were raised. Like, for example, we were told, well, you have to finish your peas to get your dessert. Mm-hmm. so many of us and it's still ingrained in so many of our um <clears throat> kind of in our soul about food it's what we feel about like you well you can't get the the reward if you don't go through the work but we're teaching kids dessert good vegetables blah. you have to eat through something to get what you really want and we're actually teaching them to overeat in some cases if they're saving some room they have you know they're hungry but they now have to eat an entire big bowl of peas or whatever it is before they get to something else. They might actually eat a lot more than they need. Um, Again, it sounds counterintuitive, but it kind of puts food on this pedestal of like, this is really good. This is really bad. And what are they going to think about vegetables moving forward? It hasn't been a choice of theirs. It's been a punishment. We don't want food to feel like a punishment. We want food to feel like something they're choosing to eat. Being a little more aware of others' needs is a special gift that you can bring to your holidays this year. As someone with food allergies, the holidays can bring up anxiety about safety. A question that I always ask myself is, will there be dessert that I can eat there? This is why I'm so excited that we partnered with 88 Acres, a brand that takes food allergies very seriously and has created the most delicious combinations to make holiday recipe substitutions easier than ever. This year, try subbing an 88 Acres sunflower, pumpkin, or watermelon seed butter for a nut butter in one of your favorite holiday recipes and make it something that everyone can safely enjoy. To do so, be sure to head over to 88acres.com forward slash WTAF and use our code WTAF at checkout for 15% off site-wide and be sure to DM us and let us know which product you like best. You are blowing my mind and bringing everything <laughs> full circle because the biggest, the biggest hurdle on TikTok specifically, <laughs> and with educating people on intuitive eating, 
in general is that idea and that concept of removing morality from food. And most of the time, what we learn is that the reason that it's so difficult is because it's been taught from such a young age with the example that you just provided. Um, Everybody, I've said this in a previous episode, so sorry if you guys have heard this already, but when you put kale and a donut in front of people of any age, I'm 90% positive that most people are going to be able to say what has more nutrients, quote unquote, in it. But nobody understands how to make these both fit in our lives without any rules or restrictions or um, regulations, right? Like if I have this, I'll do this. That's really what we're learning and what you're teaching us right now. It starts with the way that we talk to our kids about food. And, you know, I think just to put it out there, I know parents are doing the best that they can with what they have. And I'm telling myself that while I'm saying it yeah. out loud and it's hard, it's really hard, but the, there are resources out there that can help. I think we're so ingrained. I, I'm first off, I'm laughing about your kale versus donut. Cause Anyone listening from our audience might know that I I am not a donut person, n- never have been. I don't. I'm a pick. I'm like weird about baked cider goods. donuts. Mm, maybe like. Well, you're in Arizona, so it's no, it's not fall there, right? <laughs> no, it's hot. Um, but people always laugh because I thought you were going to make people choose between. And I was like, you know, the di- like it's really, it really would. I really would choose the kale, but that's not because it's kale. <laughs> it's because I just don't like donuts. You hate donuts that much. And that's- and that's one of those things that, you know, I think when you have lived by food rules for so long and like mired in diet culture, you, <laughs> you don't necessarily even know what you like anymore. So you don't true. know what you want or what you like. And I've learned, I am incredibly picky about desserts and sweet foods. Like I'm like the pickiest sweet person ever. That's amazing. If what is your favorite? Then I have to know. <laughs> it has to have. To, it has to contain chocolate, and it can't be like mm-hmm. a fluffy thing. It has to be like a dense thing. And like I that. actually like my own baked goods better than other places <laughs> baked goods. I'll say it. I think I'm a good baker, but I, I I feel like we don't get to learn that when we're so worried about is this healthy or is this not? I'm gonna. It's not healthy. I'm gonna destroy the evidence. Get it down. Right. What's the point of eating that if you didn't enjoy it? Right. It's so true. And I think that right there can bring us into the main event of our episode here. Um, Learning your food preferences as a kid is something that your parent, caregiver, person teaching you in this while we're listening right now is working really hard on to have that experience for a child. And that what you are just saying, which I think is so powerful is as adults go through diet culture, if, I mean, me personally, like you get to a point where you don't even know what you like anymore. And that's really what we over here are trying to teach as well, that you're allowed to have food preferences and that food satisfaction is a huge part of the meal. And so- (laughs) I feel like I bang my head against the wall every day wanting to screen that out into the universe because people forget they forget how powerful satisfaction is when it comes to eating it's powerful and those of us that have recovered from disordered eating behavior or chronic dieting it we're both raising our hands it is everything we were we were so used to being so unsatisfied for so long 
And now we're really seeking that out. And it's so interesting to me to watch my children go through this. I, mm-hmm. I will say, it sounds like we've had this grandmaster plan for this. You know, I'm a certified intuitive eating counselor. Um, I actually worked under directly under Elise and Evelyn. I know them personally. I know <laughs> we love them. <laughs> the, the things that align, I went to school, grad school and out, out in LA and my first, the professor I TA'd for literally like did, did, um, what is the word, you know, um, training underneath them. And so she brought me into it and I got to meet them. I, I literally did an intuitive eating study as my graduate thesis. Like the things just kind of came in, in the, in a way that they were meant to come. And I didn't really see it, I think until very far into it. Um, well, Evelyn, one of the co-authors of intuitive, uh, you guys, I am done with words for the week. It's Tuesday and I'm out. <laughs> Evelyn is a co-author of intuitive eating and she, she actually, we knew each other, but her daughter had found our page mm. and became a client and she messaged so and she cool. said, so it was so backwards. Right. And she said, you know, I told my mom about this and my mom said, that's like intuitive eating for babies. And I, it was this light bulb moment for me. Chilled her back. Right? <laughs> Goosebumps. Like this was everything put together in one phrase spoken, obviously from the goddess herself um, Mm -hmm. that made me realize like, yes, what we're trying to do here is set the stage so that parents continue to let children make decisions about how much to eat. Obviously they're going to still serve the meals. They're going to be in charge of what's served, but kids can be in charge of how much and kids can be in charge of, you know, this feels good to me. This feels not good to me. And as they get older, we want to continue to honor that because when they're teenagers and they have autonomy around food, we want them to know what feels good. We don't want them to think, you know, these chips are off limits. I never got to have them as a kid. I'm going to binge on them now. It's, you know, really setting the stage for how they're going to eat far into adulthood. And it really does start when they're young. Now, if you're listening to this and going, oh my gosh, I messed up my kid. I'm forcing them to eat it. Everything can be, everything can be uh, worked on there. If nothing's final or permanent, if you feel like your the way you approach food in your house doesn't feel good to you, you can always change it. And you can communicate with your kids if they're old enough, like, Hey, I know I've made you clear your plate or finish your plate every time. We're not going to do that anymore. I'm realizing how important it is for you to decide how much to eat. So this is what we're having. You can have more. You can stop now. You can have more of any one thing if there's more available. Um, But I'm not going to tell you how much to eat anymore. It's totally okay for you to change course. You don't have to commit to what you've always done. Um, But it's just, it's so healing, I think, for so many of our people because they've struggled so much with food themselves and they are now having a chance to kind of rewrite the script for their family. And that to me (laughs) is the greatest honor. That is the greatest honor of all of this. And what on the days that are hard, that's what I get, go back to. Like we get almost as many messages of about, thank you. You've helped me with my kid as you've helped me with me. (laughs) And to me, that's, I know I'm like, I'm going to start crying because that's, there's so much pain around food and eating and bodies. And there's so much shame there. And to have a baby and then know that you actually feel like you can help them not go down that road potentially is really powerful and really um, takes away so much fear, I think, for people. I think that, I mean, first of all, that was every ounce of that story was incredible. But I think 
that one of the biggest things that I'm hearing you say is that you, as the caregiver, have the opportunity, no matter where you are in your child's life, to change the direction of their future relationship with food, just simply by the words that you use. And like, that is everything. And I think that one of the biggest takeaways for me from this episode personally and our listeners know my, my struggles in the past and you know it's a constant constant piece of the journey work there's constantly work in healing right. and right. growing um but to make food fun has always been my mission and now i get to do that with another life right, right all simply by the way that I I talk about food and the excitement and the way that it's served. And that is so powerful. So thank you for reminding me and all of us that this is possible. And the last question that I have, because it came in as a question um, from a listener is, (laughs) is it actually possible to serve the exact same meal for the entire family? (laughs) Oh, that's good. That's a great question. I want to also say if it's possible after I answer this, please I yes. can give examples. Say it now. Well, I want to give some examples of like positive language because I I hate when I listen to a podcast and I'm like, but what are the tangible things that I should do right now? Yeah, and I don't I, I don't know if I communicated that clearly enough. So I just want to give some examples, and then we'll talk about that other component and making meal times a positive experience. So. Here's something that are common that parents will do when it comes to language. They'll say, you know, no, you can't have that cookie. It's unhealthy. Or you can't eat that for breakfast. That's not healthy or that's not good for you. So we recommend saying just instead, if there's something that you're not going to serve, if you choose not to serve it, say, we're not having that right now. That's not in the menu right now. Maybe we'll have that later. Especially if it's a food like you made cookies together and they know it's there. And then follow through, make sure that you're actually serving it another time when you say you will. Um, It's okay to have, you know, you still have your um, kind of guideline in your head of what you're serving. You're not a short order cook. You've chosen, we're having peanut butter toast and strawberries for breakfast. If your kid says, I want cookies, you're not necessarily going to go just run out and grab them cookies. No, we're having strawberries and toast for breakfast. We can have cookies another time. So instead of giving them a reason of like, that's not healthy or some other reason that you've decided that you don't want to serve it. I mean, I would hope you would know that cookies are, can be part of, of your life. Absolutely. Part of health. But if that's not what you're serving, it's okay to say we're not serving that right now. Um, I think a lot of times people will also do things where they'll, um, they'll start talking about how their kid eats in front of their child. And even a very young toddler picks up on language. And that's, I mean, we know that they can understand us before they can speak. And if we say things like, oh, he's really picky or he's not going to eat that, we, we set the expectation. We're telling our kids what to do. He's really picky. Kid thinks I'm really picky. All right. I'm not going to eat this. Um, and I know parents do it out of, sometimes out of self-preservation, like you're going to a barbecue, right? And you're trying to put food on the, you know, somebody's trying to serve food to your child And you don't want them to waste food. You don't want to be rude and have them expect your kid to eat something they won't eat. Um, But sometimes we need to give our kids a chance too. And they can surprise us. And if we kind of put out that expectation of, no, you might eat it. You don't have to if you don't want to, but I'm going to put it here and you you can try. Um, Then they might be more likely to eat it. So we recommend things like, um, you know, not talking about their eating behaviors in front of them if possible. But if you have to, you can say, you know, uh, well, let's see, we're learning about this food. We'll see how it goes. 
or um, we have, you know, we haven't been into it yet, but we're going to keep trying. Oftentimes kids can need 15, 20, 30 exposures of any given food to try it for the first time. So a really powerful word that we use is yet. We're not there yet. We're not into it yet because it's not forever. Like these food preferences as adults are a lot more uh, solidified. They're very fluid in kids. They like it one day, they hate it the next day. They don't eat it for three years and then suddenly they eat it again. I personally am going through a really picky phase with my six-year-old almost. She's almost six. She was very much a very adventurous eater. Um, you know, it's normal for kids to be a little bit more picky, but she was very, you know, very, had very little of that. And now it's coming out later. And it's like, ah, I knew this was going to happen one day, right? Still approach it the same way. I still offer her a variety of food, at least one safe food that is comfortable for her to eat. And I let her choose how much to eat of what's served. Um, but it's frustrating. And, you know, if I didn't do this job, I'd probably be like, what the heck? She's almost six. Why is she not eating? And I'd be, dude, you're being really picky. Let's, why are you not eating anything? Like you're so picky. And that actually reinforces what we don't want. We, we don't want her to feel like, oh, I guess I'm picky. Oh, I guess I don't like foods. We want to keep that language super neutral. So I just wanted to offer that because I, I want you guys to walk away with some, some tangible language there. Um, is it possible? To I want offer you to know. I want you oh. to know this entire episode has been tangible, and you are incredible. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank <laughs> you. We so appreciate that as well. And it's it's really just also thank you for sharing that too, because I think sometimes people don't realize that experts also struggle or experience oh, yeah. or are in totally. the trenches with you. Yeah. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Sure. And um, that's- you know, I feel like my kid is actually being really helpful for content because she's, as they get older, obviously like six or seven is when we start to see some of the picky eating subside and she's my youngest. I'm like, oh no, she's heading straight into it. You know, like this is, I guess, kind of helpful for me reminding our audience that I deal with it too, and that this is normal. There's a certain level, obviously we don't, we want to get them extra help. If your child is eating less than like 20 total foods, and I say 20 as in uh, you know, Cheerios would be one food, honey nut Cheerios would be another food, right? So 20 completely different foods, if they they will not eat that many, or if you're noticing that they're struggling to put certain textures in their mouth, they won't hold certain textures in their hands, they're um, spitting out a lot of food and they're, they're not actually swallowing any of that, definitely reach out to your doctor because you might need a little bit more help with that. But um, regarding your question about can we actually offer the same foods, Yes, it's totally possible. Is it necessary all the time? No, um, but your your child, this is so hard guys because some of you guys are listening to this and you're like, you like to cook and your home life is pretty stable right now and everything's going okay. And some of you are in crisis right now, right? And it's takes everything you have to get food on the table and you have a picky eater potentially. And all you want to do is just feed them and put them to bed at night. So with understanding that that is the reality for so many people. I'm such a hand talker, by the way. You guys should see my hands in the screen. Um, they will if they watch on YouTube. <laughs> on YouTube, YouTube. Um, with that being the understanding, we do recommend serving the same or similar foods when possible. Your child will model what you're eating. It will kind of require you to... Um, or allow you, I should say, to serve more variety to them because hopefully you're eating some variety in what you eat. Um, and it does help them learn about the environment of the family meal. 
every family has kind of their own culture around food and you want your child to learn about that culture. This is how we as a family eat. We love condiments. We barbecue a lot. We, you know, yes, these are things that are actually very true for my family. We love salads. My family, we're all about, we do lots of green salads. It was important for me that my kids learn to eat green salads. Did they eat them every time I serve them? Absolutely not. They're now just at eight and almost six. Very, I say almost because, you know, I don't want to, you never want to age your kid because it's devastating as they get older. <laughs> like they're so little, she's still five for a few more days. But at eight and almost six, they will eat it more consistently, but they won't eat it every time. Um, and I want my, ch- my kids to know, like, this is how we eat and this is what I serve and this is what we like to eat as a family. And I want them to participate in that. However, there are nights when they're really tired. They had a really late night the night before or whatever. They, they were with friends and they need to go to bed earlier than I would probably eat. Or they're sick or they're dealing with something, whatever, you know, babysitter, all these different things. There are so many times when you wouldn't necessarily serve the same meal to them as yourself. And that's okay too. It's okay for our kids to see flexibility here. But if you're constantly making a different meal every time you make food that is more expensive for you, that is harder for you in the long run and pretty annoying, if you feel like you don't want to do that anymore, there is a way out. There are ways to do this. So I, I definitely want you to talk to your doctor if you feel like picky eating is really taking over. But we do have a lot of resources over at Feeding Littles and courses for you to learn kind of expert tips about it because it is possible. Now, when I say serve your kids the same meal as you, that doesn't mean they necessarily eat it. They don't always eat the same meal as you. But at least it's in front of them. And it's very typical for a toddler or a kid to only eat two decent meals a day, even mm-hmm. though they're served three. I'm sure you, I mean, you probably don't know yet because your baby's so young, but so pretty soon <laughs> he might be, and again, he might not, who knows, but he might be one that really does well for breakfast and lunch. And then dinner is like, eh, I'm too tired. I'm over the day, whatever. And that's totally fine. That's super normal. As long as they're growing and their output, you know, pee and poop output are normal it's actually kind of what we expect. So, yeah. So even if it's like, oh gosh, you know, I serve these things and my kid only eats the rice and my kid only eats the fruit. They only eat the chicken, whatever. That's actually pretty common and that's okay. As long as we're getting a variety of food over, you know, over the week, not the day. So good. You have given us so much in this episode. I seriously, and I speak on behalf of Sam and I, I am so, we are so grateful for your time, your expertise and everything that you do for, again, millions of families. And so for anyone who could possibly not know where to find you at this point, can you sure. just share where people can find you and what it is that they can find um, either on your page or on your website? I'm actually on your link tree and the amount of things that are available here are incredible. I go in there uh, and I'm like, I really should remove some. This is just a lot. <laughs> It's amazing. I mean, there's so much free stuff and resources and the Amazon page I have up right now too, that because there's so many gems in here. (laughs) And we're also writing a cookbook. So um, it's in a collaboration with Inspiralize. It's Allie. Oh, that's amazing. She just had She's written multiple best-selling cookbooks. Not me. I don't know how to write recipes, but we, (laughs) we've collaborated on this because it's a whole bunch of education in it. And each recipe has all these different ways you can 
modify for allergies or make it more friendly for your picky eater, serve it to your baby. So it's age six months through 99 plus. Um, it's That's being amazing. published next late spring. Um, it takes quite a while. It takes a long time. I'm learning. Oh, thank you. So <laughs> we have a sign up for that on our link tree. It's just a cookbook early access. And then there'll be some, if you pre pre-order it, you'll get some cool freebies too. I'm going to do that right now because that's We're just, incredible. It's just, it's a crazy process. We're trying to pick the cover, the cover art right now, which I'm like, I can't, sometimes I can't believe that we're doing this. And I also can't believe how long it takes to, to put out a cookbook. There it is, entire yeah. life by feeding little. That is amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. Thank oh, you. We are so, so grateful. Thank you for everything. And oh, everybody go follow if you're not already at Feeding Littles. Guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of What the Actual Fork Pod. We know there are a lot of pods out there and we are so grateful that you are here listening with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, like, share with all your friends and faves and follow along with us on social at What the Actual Fork Pod. We promise to continue to bring you the hottest topics, greatest guests, and the most fun you can possibly have while fighting diet culture bullshit. We love you, we appreciate you, and we will see you next week for a lot more fun.